Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. We're back after a week off. Um, we didn't have any particular reason to have a week off, but all three of us were uncommonly busy, I would say. Tammy was in transit from uh, Washington back to New York. Tammy, are you back in New York? Yeah. Hey, guys. I think this is the first time we your, your apartment has been your background. Um, <laughs> My tiny apartment since the spring. You've, you've been like in a... Yeah, have you been back? Maybe, maybe, maybe one of the first episodes or something like that. Yeah, you, oh, yeah. this fort in your bedroom the first few times. Oh Try yeah, recording studio. Oh, that's right. We yeah. tried. That's we tried. Play with all six hundred square feet of my place, <laughs> corners. Um, and Andy, how are you doing? Uh, I don't know. Every day is a blur, so I guess I'm, I'm surviving. Okay, <laughs> that's good to know. And today we have the Joe House of the. I think that's such a. I feel like that's not an obscure reference to me, Tammy. Do you know what what it means if one says the Joe House of this podcast? No, I. Mean, I it's like a sports thing. I would have been yeah, disappointed if Tammy knew. Actually, yeah. <laughs> Tammy it's knows more. a lot about more important things than <laughs> the extended Bill Simmons universe. So. Yeah, so Joe House is Bill Simmons' best friend from high college, and he's always on Bill Simmons' podcast. He's like the recurring guest. And so Washu, who's with us, is the uh, Joe House of our podcast. is his second appearance. Happily. Um, Happily. Yeah. (laughs) Self-appointed Joe House of the podcast. And uh, we're going to talk about, um, yeah, we're going to talk about a lot of stuff today. Uh, Where should we start? I don't know. There's so much to talk about. There's... Andrew Yang doing this sort of bodega thing. Do you Oof, guys want to talk yeah. about that? Oh, God. I just well, watched it right before. I didn't realize this was a thing. You didn't see it when it came out? No. I mean, how, how's this campaign going? I, I've not paid attention. Um, well, not, not I think it's well. going well in the sense that nobody knows anyone else who's running. Right. right? He, se- he seems to be the only person who's running, even though that's not true. But And he's sucking up all the attention. But, you know, I don't know if that, that matters. It, he's... Uh, like, what's the process? Is it like a Democratic primary in the spring and then an election in the yeah. fall? Yeah. yeah. I'm excited about Maya Wiley, but she's not getting much air because of Yang. So we'll see. Yeah. Yeah, he's like a planet, you know, for attention. Yeah. He sucks up all the... And everyone else is sort of boring next to him. Wow, what did you think of, of Andrew Yang's bodega video? I mean, it's just going to be so much more uncomfortable than his presidential bid was. <laughs> I mean, just living in New York, it, it's already just... There's just so many moments of cringe, which is unfortunate because, you know, there are there are other candidates and they're all like arguably more interesting than him. But, you know, he just he's just really good at kind of being kind of weirdly curious and dumb, but also smart at the same time. And I think people just (laughs) find him to be so fascinating as a result. I think there's like a sort of affability and a guilelessness about him that people yeah. respond yeah. to, um, you know, because he's just like, hey, bodegas, I love these things, you know, and that's yeah. the whole video. And then you're like, and then some people are mad because they said that's not a bodega. I find that ridiculous. I think that's a bodega, whatever. <laughs> but like, uh, I'm not even interested in arguing about it. But it is strange where it's like you sh- people should be mad at him, but like nobody's actually that mad. They're just like, oh, yeah, I like bodegas, too. You know, and I, I don't know if that's going to work for him, but he certainly is going to be the most covered candidate. You know, I, I guess I just I think back to when like DeRay McKesson ran for mayor of Baltimore and um, 
you know, people were like, oh, he's going to do really well because he's by far the most famous person running. Even though DeRay is nowhere close to as famous as Andrew Yang. But, you know, in the end, DeRay got like 3% of the vote or something like that. And it was because in Baltimore, there's just constituencies and you vote for the candidate within your constituency. Right. DeRay had no constituency. And, um, and I don't know if that's true in New York City, if that's true in New York or not. You know, I don't know if it's like people like, remember like de Blasio had like a very strong black immigrant population in Flatbush that would, that had, that turned out for him every single time. That was sort of the core of his base. I don't know what the Andrew Yang core of the base is. Do you think it's like Asian people? Do you think Asian people in New York are going to all vote for Andrew Yang? I have no idea. I feel like, I mean, people kind of like him for the wrong reasons. They hate him for the wrong reasons. And I don't think he has, because <laughs> like nationally his thing is like, you know, I'm going to talk to this, the Oath Keepers and see what they're all about. And he has this like weird curiosity <laughs> about people who hate him. But that's not really how New York works. And I don't really know like who that is, like what that doesn't really appeal to people here, right. In a city where the identities are a little more fixed than him saying like, I'm just going to move to this, I'm going to move to Georgia for a year and see what that's like. Um, So I don't know. Yeah. It's not like he's like, you know, the Trump supporters have some good points here. It's like, there's nobody in New York city who really, wants to hear that message right there's no like centering they just want to hear somebody come out and i don't know what i don't know what people want in a new york city mayor because you know the last two have been uh rudy giuliani mike bloomberg and bill de blasio but i don't know it's 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 just a strange moment i think it's an extremely not asian moment though like i feel like the one thing that i've noticed that andrew yang is no longer like it, like he doesn't reflect on us at all. It's fine. Like we don't have to get. Yeah, mad. because Ron Kim endorsed him the other day, which I was really surprised about. And Ron definitely has various Paul and Queens, and yeah. in the progressive community, it was just a bit of a weird choice. I don't. I think we're all going to kind of puzzle over it in the coming months. But you know, maybe Yang's really going to push some crazy like UBI welfareist program that yeah. I'm going to be. About. I don't know. I mean, yeah. you guys are saying. I think that kind of like empty curiosity guilelessness can lead in interesting policy directions yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. like oh what's he gonna do what if we tore down all these condo buildings and built or converted them all into public housing you know yeah, you're just like, like yeah <laughs> why I'm not board now <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah he's like yeah that, uh, you know i read this book and it seemed like a good idea so why exactly don't we try it? like i saw I an know. ad on the subway and i yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly exactly um, all right. Well, I don't know. Like, I don't think that I, I think that the bodega stuff is sort of, I don't know. My main thing is just like, I don't, I, I don't know if people are really, I don't know how anybody's going to pay attention to any of the other candidates. And I think that leads to a bad, like a bad campaign process. But at the same time, I don't know, you know, it's the advantage that he had of doing it and he's, he's pressing it and who can be that mad about it. Andrew Yang is mayor in New York. Like, who cares? You know, like, is it really that big of a disaster? <laughs> Did he? Um, the only thing I saw was that he was getting criticized for saying, "Like, how could I live in New York City right now? I have two kids um, in like a you know one thousand square foot apartment or whatever. Like, <laughs> who could do that? You know, <laughs> which sounded yeah. kind of tone deaf. I don't know if that like passed in, within twenty four hours or if it's it was going to trail him. I think it passes. I don't yeah. know, but you know who knows. Like I don't. I don't know how these things work. Like it. It seems like last election when De Blasio was up against Weiner, that 
you know. Oh my god, I forgot about last second. Yeah, because it was like, well, Wiener did the thing, and then <laughs> wow, everyone hated Catherine Quinn, right? And then De Blasio did that ad where he's like, "Here's my son Dante," and then he won. You know, so like, who fucking knows what can happen? Christine Quinn. Christine Quinn. Christine Quinn. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, okay, so we do have something to talk about that Andy published on our site. Um, it was about this sort of question of what to make with what happened on January 6th, right? One six. Yeah. 2021. I think that's what people are now referring to it, or at yeah. least I've seen it at this point. Um, anyway, why don't do you want to detail your argument for us? Like, what were you saying? And why? Please chime in because I want to. I, I, we want to know what you think too. What is this beeping noise in the background? Is that? I hear kids. Text is messages that... or something. Okay, Andy. Yes, explain. Sorry. Uh, well, so I just I was mainly writing it uh, in a reaction to like the stuff. I mean, I wasn't hearing anything. Just seeing online. Uh, the day the day of the six and the day after where I just kind of felt like a lot of people were uh, quickly overcorrecting maybe by uh, in reaction to the capital attack we can call it an attack um, or a whatever uh, uh, on the capital where people I think were quickly kind of throwing out a lot of their principles um, and saying like we should embolden like like where's the police why aren't the police like beating these people up? Um, and my fear was like, it was going to go in this direction of saying, like, we should have a new like war on terror to like weed out all these right-wing terrorists. Um, and that's kind of like the punchline, right? But along the way, I was kind of thinking more about like, well, how do we actually think about who these people are? Um, I wasn't quite sure what I thought about these people. And I, you know, fully admit to like not studying this that closely. And I haven't really followed all the sort of follow-up stories about like, we found this person who was from this neighborhood who like participated in the attack. So I don't really like sociologically know who these people are, but I was trying to figure out like, how do we characterize them? Because I think what was bothering me was there's all this language out there that treats them as sort of like traitors, insurrectionists, revolutionaries, sort of like anti-government, anti-state, right? Which is true on some degree, on some level, but they're not like leftists or they're not trying to overthrow the U S government. In fact, they're doing the opposite. They're trying to, in their minds, maintain and be loyal to what America is. And I think that kind of throws a wrench in a lot of analysis out there. Um, so I'm not sure like insurrection is the right word to begin with. And I think insurrection might, if we throw around words like insurrection and anti-American, that could lead to a lot of, you know, um, uh, unintended consequences for, for leftists or for people who actually do have a critique of the government. Um, and then more more broadly, I guess I, I was very speculatively making this analogy with some analysis, class analysis of fascism before, where um, you know the people I've written about like the 30s were they weren't just about like the ruling class and the petty bourgeoisie, which is like a familiar argument people have made, or the or anything. It's really about how multiple classes in society, under certain conditions, begin to kind of align themselves. With the most okay, I'm going to read. I'm going to read the part that you wrote. Okay. Okay. Rosenberg's main point was that fascism worked only with the merging of many different classes in society. First, there are political and business elites who mostly monopolize power in society, but are too few to hold any popular democratic appeal. Think the Kochs, Waltons, Amazons, and Goldmans. Secondly, there is the social base, the non-elite who defend the first group in their on their behalf. The elites could not survive without them, ranging from workers to small business owners to managers to, quote, intellectuals like Larry Summers. What distinguished modern fa fascism, though, was the appearance of stormtroopers, volunteer corps that does the state's normal job of enforcing 
uh, roll through violence for them as a grassroots rather than top-down approach, a fitting name for the stop the steal crowd, or is it? Um, is I think what you're asking. Yeah. Fascism, Rose, Rosenberg put it, is nothing but a modern form of the bourgeois capital, capitalist counter-revolution wearing a popular mask. Yeah. So I think the, I think what people were kind of seeing this stop the steal crowd as very like fringe, and sort of exceptional, and in very many ways it is it's very extremist. Um, and but on the other hand, I think. You know, a lot of people are denouncing them, like mainstream moderate politicians, a lot of the GOP, a lot of these corporations that have pulled their donations. In the minds of the Stop the Steal crowd, they are defending those people, right? They are the people who are saying, like, the American way of life, business, the GOP is under attack. And maybe those groups are now, like, distancing themselves from them. But, like, I don't know, I'd say, like, a year or two ago, like, most GOP people were okay with playing around with this group, right, to the extent that it would it helped them like, you know, bolster Trump and therefore bolster the party. And to the extent that this group would have been useful to them, I think a lot of, a lot of these people would have been okay with them. So I don't know. I I think like, I I just think it's, it's your analysis of this whole event and what to do about it changes depending on if you see them as a sort of like outside group trying to overthrow the government versus this like loyalist group trying to maintain the government, trying to maintain the business and the ruling class you know, quote unquote ruling classes. Um, and so I don't know that it was, it was a speculative piece. And I think uh, honestly, a lot of people, I think I was just kind of going crazy the first 48 hours after it happened. But I think a lot of other people have, you know, like come out with statements like we don't need another war on terror and blah, blah, blah. So I feel, yeah, like, well, I think that, that thing we can all agree with, right? Like the idea that like you have to call them terrorists and you have to prosecute them as terrorists. We're like, let's not do that. You know? Like we don't need like it's bad enough that like if an Ethiopian kid in Portland, Oregon, you know, gets sucked in by some like FBI agent posing as some girl who lives in, you know, um, I don't know, like lives in like the caliphate and like and then the kid like says, hey, yeah, bomb would be cool. Then they send him to Guantanamo. Like, like it's bad enough. Like we don't need more of that. Right. And I think everyone can agree on that. I mean, outside of, you know, people who scream I mean, about this stuff. online. Yeah, I mean, I think four of us agree, but I think a lot of. Let's not speak for a while. Why do you agree with that? <laughs> I agree. Um, okay. That was a great piece. And I, I think that yeah. it's it's sort of really trying to thread the needle because I think that there's a, probably a, a lot of people in our circles where it's not like you wanted them to get the shit kicked out of them because you're pro-cop all of a sudden. It's more like that would have been sort of satisfying just as a visual spectacle. You know what I mean? Like it was just, it was just like fucking weird to see that not happen but that didn't mean that it served i mean it does serve an ideology but you're also just like that would have been kind of rad to see does that make sense there was a lot of there was a lot of like revenge politics I totally yeah yeah floating at least on like you know left left yeah. center left twitter for a few days that i thought was that made me uncomfortable like i get it but i'm also sort of like i don't know <laughs> But it wasn't just that, because as you point out in your essay, it's also just about this, you know, incredibly obvious, spectacular disjuncture between like the treatment of leftists and rightists, right? Yeah. And so, yeah, just that kind of like urge towards justice piece, like kind of mixed with vengeance for yeah. sure. But, you know, it was just so clear what was yeah. going on. Yeah, to be, I mean, to be very simplistic, like you could go one of two ways with that. I mean, many ways, right? But one, you could say like, everyone should get their ass kicked by the cops. And I think that's kind of the direction some right. people were saying. 
or everyone should be treated by the cops really well. Right. And, right. Of course. You know, yeah. And I think there are a lot. I think the initial direction was in the ass kicking direction, but maybe it's faded into like maybe it's sort of a moderate. <laughs> like no one was saying like cops did a great job. You know, no one was saying like <laughs> it's really good how they let the let these people in. So I think that was never right. I think I was sort of like I don't want to say this either, but I, I think that's I, I see, more I, the I, language of social media, though, right? Like I think that the one thing that you have on Twitter that works every time is when you say X people, this happened in X situation and this happened in Y situation, and these two are not the same, right? And so saying like, well, during the cap protests in D.C. during the summer, right, then all this happened. And it, the same thing didn't happen to these people. And there's never really a there's never really a directive out of that, right? There's never like a clear statement. It's just I think people who are frustrated, who are sort of venting that these things aren't equal, but there's no vision that follows out of it for what should what it should be. And I think most people would agree that I, and the thing that I think is concerning, Andy, that I would agree with you about somewhat is that I do think that there is a certain amount, and I would say maybe the majority of people in the Democratic Party believe that the people who are protesting for George Floyd should not be brutalized. And I think that they think that like these people should have all been shot for breaching the Capitol, right? Like so, right. Um, that so- does seem to be like a way in which like there is a. whatever like those those principles aren't aligned and there's no coherent thought that comes out of it at the same time i also just think that people are kind of shocked yeah and they're just kind of grasping for stuff i would say that i i I had no idea it had happened until like three hours later because i was sitting in my basement doing work and i was not paying attention at all and then i went upstairs and my wife said what the fuck she was watching the news and i said why are you watching the news it's like 12 o'clock and then you know like at noon and then she was like are you seeing what's happening? And I was like, Oh my God. You know, and I still don't quite know what happened. Um, Wait, can I get, can I just, um, I just have a question about your, the sort of Kang work zone. But like <laughs> how isolated were you? Cause I feel like, like when well, I was, yeah, I, I do all my work in this basement that where I'm in right now. And I was like actually working on these book edits and I was kind of into it. And then I just kind of like lost track of everything. I didn't check anything um, for a while. And then I got, I saw a few text messages that were like, are you seeing this? And I was, you know, I just sort of ignored them, but yeah, I didn't see it until well after they had sort of cleared the Capitol and everything like that. (laughs) That's incredible focus. Yeah, that's really, that's the process. My wife was in Taiwan. wired in. Huh? My wife was in Taiwan and she was on like our group text and she was asleep through the whole thing. And then she woke up and she's like, what the fuck just happened in America? Yeah. Cause you, you know, oh she's exactly God. 12 hours off. And so yeah, yeah. I'm jealous. She was in Taiwan. Yeah. yeah. It's 3am over there. Yeah. I, <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I, yeah. Yeah. That's the other thing. It's like, uh, this is the needle that's impossible to thread, which is like, on the one hand, like all these institutions are bad. We've been criticizing for the last few years. And then on the other hand, once this happens, everyone's like the sacred institution of the electoral college. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, well, I'm not, I'm not saying they should have actually stopped the vote, but I'm also not saying we should, you know, like make the electoral college, you know, we should sacralize it at this, like, because it's 300 years old, therefore it's really good. Right. Which is like. I think, yeah, I think that's a reading, but I think another reading is we barely eked out anything resembling an actual like any like 
smidge of justice we like worked really hard to achieve in this election and like it was through so much like ground organizing and like difficulty and so I think then to have this as a slap you know I think from like I'm sure a lot of organizers were like they aren't like oh yeah everything's working perfectly but it's like in this yeah. system that is so broken mm-hmm. we eked it out and now holy crap you know I guess I just I guess I'm curious for what everyone else felt I never felt like it was in under danger in under like like anyone's ever gonna like actually... even after reading all this stuff about I mean, how like, no no i mean I, I think like AOC in terms of trump like getting the president oh, act- oh oh i didn't think that there's gonna be, I, I didn't think it was gonna be like lim is you know where they're gonna like throw <laughs> i was thinking about lim is so much when i was watching the video so i was just like oh my god this is just like lim is you know they're like throwing barriers down and they're they're trying to torch like blow things up and they're gonna go sing but like i don't think it was like that like there's no there's no chance that the revolution that they're trying to inspire right, is okay. going to happen right? but i think like, there's but... a lot of coup talk the next 48 hours and that's what i was like am i but, just crazy yeah. did i like miss did i miss the part where they almost voted for trump back into office like no 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 i don't think that any did anyone i don't think anyone really thought that like, i think that's that what the language felt of... like no go on, i do think that they felt like this was very dangerous which i think is a fair thing to think right that some people's yeah. lives were actually in danger and that they're responding to that. Like, I don't, I, I think that that's, um, I don't think that that's really under too much debate. But yeah, the one thing I thought was that I agree that like some of the fantasies that people have are very like reinforcing and go counter to their other principles. For example, I had this amazing thought that what, what they should do with them is that they should have the CIA start an op and that they should pretend to be Q. And what they should do is they should have Q be say, like basically be like, we need our own colony, you know, and just take all the people to fucking like where Jonestown was in Guyana or something like that. And then just have them live there and just pay the whatever government you send them to to live there. Right. Like, isn't that like an efficient way to deal with like the Q says that we need to convert to solar? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Q. Oh my God! Like what Q poor country would you dump vegan. these people on? You know, of course it's like a horrible thought, but like you know, um, yeah. Q says we need to like practice commune living, you know, and we need to like uh, we need to really focus on the interpersonal relationships between each other, and not so much on the American political system because America has abandoned us, and so we're gonna move to like whatever country, right? Like I think that's a pretty good idea, but then you're just like, oh well, you're just fantasizing about more CIA power to do things that they did to like squelch. Uh, extremist groups in the 70s and like is that what we're going to just be fantasizing about from now on with these people yeah i mean i, I think I, my I, idea I, is pretty good though. it's a great idea <laughs> we don't, we don't like need, idea you don't need <laughs> like in, we don't need to involve intelligence in that like i feel like you just, just said figure out yeah. the password you know <laughs> yeah you don't actually need cia yeah. you're right you could just like pretend to be Q on one of these forums <laughs> just, just do it yourself oh that's true um yeah I don't know uh what, what was your big thought about all of this you know from watching it I know we're a little bit behind on these takes but we did take last week <laughs> I don't know it was I I just I was surprised I mean I, I sort of shared I thought Andy's piece was great in that um you know it's sort of underscored how backward looking a lot of this is. And I mean, just even the idea that they're called like oath keepers or that they, they were fighting to keep someone in elected office. Like it, it sort of speaks to how backward looking their vision of the future is. Um, not that, you know, Democrats or whatever are necessarily any better. They just want 
a better past, you know, like a different version of the past. But I think I was just really baffled about baffled by like when we agreed to use the word insurrection. Um, I mean, and, and I think for me, it's just because I remember reading this book a while ago, The Coming Insurrection by these like French anarchists that like, it was like this big book in like 2007. And it pretty much is like the blueprint for a lot of like French anarchists and like kind of extreme left activism. And, um, but it's, it has nothing to do with like, we need to keep this guy as prime minister. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like they, they weren't like, you know, um, uh, I'm drawing a blank on any French corporation, but you know, they weren't really fighting to maintain a status quo. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Care for must be protected. But, um, I don't know. It's just sort of strange that, you know, like Andy was saying, like the coup insurrection, like I agree that it was pretty fucking weird and um but like i don't know that it was a coup right or there was like actually an insurrection yeah i think it was like some scary people did some crazy shit yeah you know and i don't think that most of the people there were planning on that right because there's every protest the same you have like eight people who are gonna do something crazy and then two if 200 people follow those eight people then you have what happened you know but and that's what seems to happen at this sort of thing, at, at this thing as well. And so I don't know if it's like all this coordinated thing with all this mass of people that people are talking about. But it does appear that some of the cr- people who are willing to do stuff are taking it to like a crazy level. Yeah. Right? And that is concerning. Like that's that's yeah. the one thing I think we can take out of it. I used to take these people extremely not seriously. <laughs> and, you know, I was very proud of myself. It's like, whatever. I saw these people. I don't, you know, I've reported on them. I don't find them scary at all. But now some of them seem scary. Right. I think that's a, maybe one thing that yeah. we can take away with it. Some yeah. of these dudes are fucking scary, you yeah. know, and then some of them are hilarious like that, you know, that woman who took the private jet, you know, that <laughs> right. one. I, I, I want to reserve the ability to still laugh at that, you yeah. know, and not just like clutch my clutch my pearl. I, I, now that I say that, it seems so gendered. That saying, right? <laughs> um, what were you going to say? Clutching clutch my pearls. pearls. Oh, yeah. pearl clutching. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. I don't want to put, uh, clutch my <laughs> whatever the non-dread version of that would be but um i don't want to do it but you know maybe i should i don't know maybe i'm just like being too contrarian about this right now tammy what do you think like i I, I was just gonna add that you know because we've talked about this a little bit before but you know this ongoing debate about whether or not fascist analogies are helpful blah 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 and sam moyne um who writes a lot on these issues like this week wrote in the nation that you know he he's still doesn't believe that it's helpful to invoke fascism as an analogy. And in the same way that Andy was just explaining, like, this is not a coup. And Paul was saying, this is not an insurrection. Like, he's like, this is not really fascism. But he 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 says, but what we should be thinking about and what is helpful is that there are fascist tendencies and like real, like people who really support fascism who are like increasingly organized in our society and that that is something to attend to. So yeah. that's me, I thought was helpful and kind of answers what you were just saying, Jay, because I think we can say like, yeah, some of this is comic, some of it is like tragicomic, some of it is like actually really scary and it could get worse because like those organizational ties have been built. Yeah. 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 They're yeah. not going to stop, I think is the one. I, exactly. And they're not going to stop. So, you know, yeah, what unless, do we do they're in, that? unless they're in Guyana, like growing artichokes. <laughs> and- <laughs> With <laughs> apologies to all other countries, we're not going to send these people to you. <laughs> I find the comic aspect like truly weird because my whole life, the right wing and sort of conservatives have been humorless 
and um, <laughs> like not ironic. And I just find the rise of like, you know, the right as like this subculture, like internet culture, memes, like the boom mm. stuff. Like it's just very disorienting to me as someone who has always found that political orientation to be like allergic to irony and humor or like wit. Um, I don't know. It's just very weird. Mm. I remember in like 2015, 2016, just this idea that like Trump was funny to people or that like uh, Milo was funny or that they, the trolls were funny. You know, I didn't think it was that funny, but, and I still don't, but I'm just, it just, I kind of understand the appeal as like subculture more now. And that's kind of concerning to me because it's, it's like yeah. belief, but also there is like this entire like culture around it now. That's, totally. You know, that's very different. And an aesthetic, yeah, like with the totally. boogaloo, like all the clothing and the symbolism. Yeah. 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 And it's not like a fully white space either, you know, mm -hmm. at this point. So you don't even have that barrier where. A lot of the Proud Boys and stuff are, quote, people of color, you know, and it's caused this huge rift yeah. because, or this problem mainly for people to conceptualize it because it's not really white supremacy, you know, it's something else. And I don't know. I, I think that once you take away like the, oh, these people are just white supremacists, then it does become more appealing to, I think, a larger group of people yeah right and like it's hard to be an open white supremacist i'm sorry you know like I, i'm sure that some people would disagree with this but it's you know wearing clan hats like can't do it in public you know? <laughs> but um i don't know it's it's uh it's it's like i was thinking about this too just in terms of those extremist groups because i think about this all the time just like well you know this is a question that many people pose just like are we gonna are we gonna have like a symbionese liberation army right like are we going to have these like sort of very radical splinter groups from big movements and what will they look like now the people on the right will look at something like they'll be like wokeness is going to lead to the symbionese liberation army but it's very very clear to everyone i think who has a brain that all these uh extremist groups are going to be on the right right like the symbionese yeah. liberation army yeah. is going to be a right-wing movement at this point like there's no left-wing version of it right. like the left-wing version is like eight people tweeting you know <laughs> like it's not like there's 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 no sort of radical left in that sort of way but there's a radical right and i just think that like how would how would the people who went to this capital not splinter off into more and more violent and reactionary groups of course they're going to do that you know and then yeah. we're going to have people getting kidnapped and shit like that and and things exploding and i don't know i i find that very hard to think isn't going to happen and so i do think that you have to take it somewhat seriously but at the same time, I feel the same resistance where I'm just like, it's not a fucking insurrection, you know? It's not like a coup. It's not fascism, really. But then you look at the intellectual class, and that's all they seem to want to discuss is whether or not those it are those it's those terms. And maybe that's yeah. because the the response that I think everyone will say might be warranted at this point is something like a counterterrorism thing. Because like, what else are you going to do? You're just going to let these people fucking kidnap Kamala Harris or something like that, right? Like, you can't do yeah. that. So um, I don't know if you could even say that, right? Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, maybe we'll let that one out. Yeah, no, but don't you think some shit like that's gonna happen? Like that's what I think. Yeah, well, well, if, I the, like, uh, AOC, if I was yeah, AOC, exactly. I'd be Michigan. fucking terrified right now. Yeah. You know, like I would, I'd buy a gun and I would, you know, sit in a basement somewhere. Like I'd be fucking terrified. Like it, the, 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 the threat to those types of people, I think, is very real. I don't. Do you guys disagree with that? 
No, I totally do, agree. I mean, do I, not disagree. Yeah, I this feel is like, like a Chana's missing moment. Like yes or no. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Good transition. I feel like Andy was like, "Let's stop talking about this right now. Let's talk about everything." Like with Andy's piece and sort of like Sam's piece that Tammy was just talking about. Like, I think the importance in you know trying to figure out what it is or describe it is that you know as Andy was pointing out they're fighting for a pat like a vision of the past right and it just sort of goes back to historical amnesia and sort of like these larger um absences in american life and so i mean i think it can seem kind of pedantic sometimes to be like what is what is a coup like what is fascism but as long as there's some way in which we can then think about like what vision of society yeah we should be working towards like it's it's it can be kind of useful even though it also just kind of seems like yeah. you know a little navel gazy sometimes like are you worried about the young people on the right i was listening to the uh i was listening to the in in our time podcast about the cultural revolution oh yeah and, i was yeah, listening to that too did this... no did you hear that, Ooh, I want to hear that. <laughs> yeah it's, it's like, since the pandemic so the show has not been as good because they have to record it all remotely and then edit yeah. it so yeah. you have less of melvin bragg interrupting people when they talk too long um which is the best part of the show you know where it just cuts people <laughs> off just like can you please stop talking about this thing um but like you know the red guard do you see something like do you like these people like charlie kirk or turning point media or candace mm-hmm. owens like do you are you afraid of them in any sort of way do you take them more seriously under that type of context where you have like this powerful not so powerful leader but you have these these young people who sort of their job is to be indoctrinated and then indoctrinate others and that you know they're very effective at this and they have large audiences like are you worried about them or do you think they're just clowns wait who are the guests on this cultural revolution episode and we don't need to go into like the we're not going into the inner (laughs) inner academic politics of like who gets to be on Melvin Bragg's podcast? <laughs> Why wasn't I? I will say they did have an actual yeah. Chinese person on the show. It wasn't all three white people, so it was. Oh, you know, yeah, but the revolution is dominated by yeah. Chinese immigrants, though. Like um, Chinese China Twitter was talking about the Cultural Revolution for like two days when this happened, and I disagreed with the analogy. I thought wait, it was when that episode of In These Times dropped. <laughs> <laughs> or during the one the, uh, interruction. Oh, okay. Because uh, I don't, because like I can that's like I don't think this was. On the one hand, yes, it was cult of personality. It is all about Trump, but it's not just that. It was like it was this broader, as Swa was saying, like vision of society where they felt like this was their last chance to save America, and that is you know the kind of opposite of what let's say the Cultural Revolution was about. Uh, the, uh, the other analogies, like what I was pointed out in my in, on, tw- on Twitter and in the piece, was like 19th century Asian cults like uh, the boxers or the oh my God, yeah. Dong Hawk mm-hmm. rebellion in Korea, yeah. which is like, yeah. it was an uprising where they stormed the capital, but it was to preserve the imperial system. Right. Yeah. Right. It's like Mishima uh, committing seppuku, right? Yeah. It's like bring sure. back the, well, is it just to bring back the emperor or something like that? That's why he did it. Yeah. And he like tried to cut off his own head. Yeah. Or he cut off someone else's head. I don't remember what happened, right. but like. Um, so cultural revolution actually would take seriously that these people are like leftist revolutionaries, right? But the better analogy are these weird millenarians, yeah. you know, loyal in the 19th century, in my opinion. But on, yeah, but on Jay's narrower question of cadre building, the red guard <laughs> question, you know, I think like. I, I don't know. I think it's very useful to talk about because I, I am personally actually really concerned about that 
sort of adolescent and young adult yeah. grooming period that TPUSA is like doing an excellent job at attacking. Great job doing I think yeah. we really need to be freaked out about that. And I don't know that it's we're going like Red Guard Hitler youth style, but like I think they are very determined about a cadre. And like yeah. Yeah. we actually don't have a cadre program like on the left right now. <laughs> Yeah, we have like I think that, DSA we have like, is we have like hot girls dancing just, in Bernie it's called like, on TikTok. Like I mean, I think arts college, you know. The DSA youth groups are like very good and like there's a lot of amazing organizing going on and like racial justice, blah blah blah. But like serious, like disciplined work like that, like I actually think TPSA is doing that. Oh, for sure. I think it's freaky. I take them. I take them very seriously. Um, wow, yeah. do they have a presence at Vassar? Uh, not that I know of, but um, I mean, Vassar is like, it's kind of, yeah, it's well, not really like the, the at-risk <laughs> community that we're, we're talking about, right? So Are there like two people? <laughs> I mean, Vassar They're just, like... you know, it's just like at the opposite end of the spectrum where, um, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's what, it's what the right hates, so, yeah. and organizes I... against very well, so. I think Tammy, your the counter to your argument, which I don't know if I believe or not, I would say I probably don't believe, is that people would argue that the that college period is a left indoctrination program. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. And are, that, um, are we losing sight of the fact that young people are overwhelmingly to the left in this country? Maybe there's subcultures of these TPUSA people, but I think overall the trends seem to suggest Oh, for sure. Yeah. Right? Yeah. 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 No, yeah, I don't think I don't... that I don't think there needs to be too many of these people to be. That's the thing. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, if we're talking about the kind of, you know, right wing extremism that's being groomed. Yeah. They're very that that Tammy, I would say that the thing that that that's the most concerning to me is that is just how effective they are, you know? Yeah. And how how quickly they can turn people's brains into like, you know, well if cancel culture, but all their sort of usual talking points. And there's no real response to it except to sort of scoff at them and call them poor, you know, or call them dumb or call them uneducated. Like these seem to be the general responses from the left or at least from yeah. Democrats. And it's just very un ineffective right now. And I, I don't I don't know how this stuff works without Trump. But I do think that like it might even get stronger because you don't really have Trump mm -hmm. as like a guy who's always fucking up. You know, you just have him as like this sort of like idea this, and then, yeah. of course, he's more important as like an idea than anything else. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, anyway, any other thoughts on this? I mean, yeah, I, I take it seriously. My main takeaway is on a small level, like weed out these people. Don't call it terrorism. Just do it quietly. And then the big, big picture level. <laughs> just disappear, let's just disappear them. <laughs> <laughs> but like big picture, there should be some sort of, there should be some sort of war on them that, you know, it, it shouldn't be clean. Perhaps it should be messy or dirty. I don't know what the, like, what it is. And he's like, let's Pinochet them. <laughs> you don't have to call them gulags. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't, I, I will say that as when the stuff comes out and, you know, I did, this is me being the most honest that I can be when like the details come out about some of the stuff they're planning, yeah. you do kind of get in, you do have a thought in your head where you're just like, you should, we should just fucking get rid of these people, yeah. you know? And, um, I think that's sort of the knee jerk impulse right now. Yeah. And I don't think that's something that, the Biden administration and DOJ under Biden is going to really do, you know, but then you just have all these people floating around and, um, I, think, I mean, the one ready to commit. I, I think we just have to, 
I think we just have to fucking deal with it. Yeah. You know, like we're just gonna have to wear it. There, I mean, there is an asymmetry in the sense that, like, when the right does this, they're a lot more militarized than when the left organizes stuff. And so there should be enough tools to prosecute them for their, you know, loading up on huge arsenals of weapons um, in a way that doesn't hurt the left. Does that make sense? You don't have to look like, you don't have to like have this blanket, you know, war on terror against all anti-Americanness. You could just, there are other tools that people should have to be able to like, to deal with these people who are, you know, seriously much more, much scarier than like other groups. I don't know if that makes sense. Like you don't have yeah, to, you don't, yeah, have, you don't have to. Yeah, right. you're talking about, yeah, using our existing judicial toolbox instead of, yeah, yeah. doing another yeah. Patriot Act, right? We don't need to do that. Yeah. I do, I, I, I think that, whoa, this is scary is the right response, you know? Yeah. And I think it's, I think it's better than this is fascism, this is white supremacy, this is a coup, this is insurrection. It's just kind of like, what the fuck, you know? <laughs> Calm down, guys. <laughs> so fuck down. Don't do this. Um, yeah. All right. Well. Uh, all right. The second part of our podcast is. Uh, I don't know. I've been waiting since we started the podcast to talk about this, so I'm very excited. I'm really glad Wa is here because Wa is the person who told me about this movie. Do you remember this? Yeah. Didn't we? We went to go see it at Bam. We're not talking about kimchi, right? <laughs> no, 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 we're not talking okay. about that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was not we're my talk about the kimchi, kimchi dogs, from so. China or, or Korea controversy, but I don't think we have time. Um, but yeah, yeah. We yeah, went we're to go see the BAM, right? Yeah, yeah. Wad, Wad was like, you should see this movie. And I was like, let's go. And it was Chan is Missing. I, I, I've, I've, I always struggle to describe what this movie is. Wad, do you have like a good encapsulation <laughs> description of what this movie is? Um, no, and I whenever I... I make students watch it. I always feel like kind of self-effacing when I do it because it's not, it's, it's not like easy to watch. It's not a difficult film. It's just very kind of like amateur, but I mean, I think he just Wayne Wang described it as like a semi documentary of, of the Bay area of San Francisco in, in the late seventies, early eighties. And that's what it is. It's like a, a film that a community made together. And what, what did you yeah, like? Wayne Wang. What but it, also it's like a buddy comedy yeah it's also <laughs> yeah, like that's, <laughs> i think we can also say that it has like a genre element yeah <laughs> yeah it's many different genres right yeah. it's san francisco noir it's like a detective story it's a buddy cop story it's about the the plot i think let's just say the plot is basically this guy is a cab driver and he has a friend and he and the friend get money together to buy a taxi license and then this guy they gave it to this guy chan and Chan disappears, and the movie is them sort of going around trying to find Chan. I think that that's a movie. Right? Yeah, that's the whole I movie. Think that's a movie. Yeah. What did... And in the movie, it you sort of see San Francisco's Chinatown in a way that I think is fair to say nobody had really thought about to show before, right? So you have, um, you know, you see everything. You see, you have this very iconic, uh, the I think probably the most famous scene in the movie, which we'll play here. Steve's joke reminded me of someone Chun Hung talks about a lot. The cook at Golden Dragon who wears a Samurai Night Fever t-shirt, drinks milk, chain smokes, and sings Fly Me to the Moon, all while he's cooking up five orders of sweet and sour pork. Oh, 
你又来了没有没有没有来了没有没有没有没有没有没有没有没有没有没有没有没有没有没有没有没有没有没有没有没有没有没有没有没有没有没有没有没有没有没有没有没有没有没有没有没有没有没有没有没有没有没有没有没有
um which is what I paused to like look, look up to be like, where, where, where is this incident? About? Like, you watch this now. on an incredibly different level. Than the first <laughs> but it's like right an now. ongoing thing now in yeah. Chinatown. Yeah. No, <laughs> well, that, but that's so the context is like all the Taiwanese immigrants own, well, not Taiwanese and Hong Kong immigrants own Chinatown. And then this film is being shot like right at the moment that China is becoming normalized. So it's like right at the moment that China becomes, begun, be, begins to become the China we know it today. Right, as the right. sort of American trading partner. Um, yeah, so I thought that was all kind of like cool. And like, and, and correct, right? You as a historian of China did not, did not object <laughs> to any of this. That incident that, that was real. Yeah, I looked yeah, it up. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's cool. It's like, uh, and I, I think that that was one of the things I think when people watch this, you know, if they're, if you're Asian, um, American, you watch it, I think a lot of people have this huge emotional response to it because. You're so unused to seeing like, you know, like ABCs in black and white in a film shot in 1980. It just mm-hmm. feels like something that is almost impossible to believe that it exists. And yeah, I think that like, you know, these are not people who came over post 1965. Like, you know, the two main characters are people who probably came over as like, you know, the small allowances that they would allow under after the Chinese Exclusion Act of like some yeah. laborers to come over. Like these are the people whose families came over and these are, you know, the types of people who in the Bay area end up going out and, you know, starting third world liberation front and stuff like that. It's like, no, seriously, you know, like that's sort of the backdrop of it. It's, it's strange. Cause like the, the place where the film is shot is also, this is something we talk about all the time on the show while it's like this one moment in 1969. Right. Yeah. Like, like we're going to rise up, but you know, like that area, the exact area of the film is where like the international hotel is, yeah, right. Totally. Cause it's right on the border of Manila town and, um, and Chinatown. And, in the film, they they go over to Manila Town, right? And it's my favorite show scene. Manila Town is like. I was just gonna say, I yeah. love that part so yeah. much. Yeah, because that's one of those scenes where he just kind of let the community represent itself, and totally. you know, Frankie Alarcon was a community organizer. He's showing them around the Manila Town Senior Center, and it just you know you see these so old Manongs like catch the camera's gaze and just kind of smile, and it just. It's just so beautiful, and then the the Los yeah. Lobos song is really great. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, I just I just think it's it you know what Andy was just saying. It just it does represent these different waves. And even though it seemed monolithic to reviewers, even you know when um, the cook with the Samurai Night Fever song like crushing milk as he's mm-hmm. like making the yeah. sour pork and being like, why do people why do white people like this? Like in the like a few minutes after that he reappears and he's wearing a suit, you know, yeah. and he's, he's, you know, in a, in a different like version of himself. And he's, he's speaking very differently about like, um, about Chan and, you know, even just that idea that we play these multiple roles, like in everyday life, um, w- among our friends was really, it was just really cool to see. Um, I also, totally. I also find it very painful oftentimes to watch uh, at the beginning when Joe and Steve are introduced to the fact that Chan is missing um, and that academic comes. Yeah. Yes. There's an academic. <laughs> yeah, sort of that's, like, that's brutal. Yeah. It's so brutal. And it just, Which it, is also like, doesn't it pick, I mean, have you guys seen that short prior and Lily Tomlin sketch, Juke and Opal? It's basically like they're in a diner and like white researchers come in. Oh yeah. So it's like almost the exact same scene. And like, anyway, I loved that part. Okay. Well, we'll play it here. 
This morning, when Steve and I were having breakfast at Chester's, a woman showed up looking for Chan Hong. It was about a car accident he was in. You see, I'm doing a paper on the legal implications of cross-cultural misunderstandings. And Mr. Chan's case is a perfect example of, of what I'm trying to expose here. You see, the policeman and Mr. Chan had completely different culturally related assumptions about what kind of communication, about communication each one was using. For instance, the policeman, in, in an English-speaking mode, asked a direct factual question. They're interested in facts, and that's all asked, did you stop at the stop sign? Expected a yes or no answer, simple yes or no answer. Mr. Chan, however, rather than giving him a yes or no answer, began to go into his past driving record, how good it was, the number of years he'd been in the States, all the people that he knew, trying to relate different events or objects or situations to what was happening then, to the action at hand. Now, this is very typical, as I'm sure you know, of most Chinese speakers, trying to relate possibly unrelated objects or seemingly unrelated objects to the matter at hand. The Chinese try to relate points or events or objects that they feel are pertinent to the situation, which may not to anyone else seem directly relevant at the time. At any rate, at this, the policeman became rather impatient, restated the question, did you or did you not stop at the stop sign, in a rather hostile tone, which in turn flustered Mr. Chan, which caused him to hesitate answering the question, which further enraged the policeman, so that he asked the question again, you didn't stop at the stop sign, did you, in a negative tone, to which Mr. Chan automatically answered, no. Now, to an, any native speaker of English. No would mean, no, I didn't stop at the stop sign. However, to Mr. Chan, no, I didn't stop at the stop sign was not, no, I didn't stop at the stop sign. It was, no, I didn't not stop at the stop sign. In other words, yes, I did stop at the stop sign. Do you see what I'm saying? He was um, correct in the Chinese because the answer has to match the truth of the action. However, English speakers, Native American English speakers, tend to work more from a grammatical mode well, to put it in layman's language, um, English language emphasizes the relationship between grammatical structures. And the Chinese language tends to emphasize the relationship between the listener, the speaker, and the action involved. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I think that, that, that there is like this, it's strange because it's like, usually you would, you would hear something like a project like this, right? And you're like, we're going to be the kaleidoscopic vision of like, <laughs> that would be the, the adjective I think people would say of San Francisco's Chinatown, right? And this is a low budget film. I think they made it for $7,000 or something like that. This is a young filmmaker. Um, wow. And you kind of cringe instinctively. Am I the only person who would feel that way, right? Like where it just sort of like a whole like, um, this is what I actually wanted to talk about with this film. And we don't have to talk about it. This is what I wanted to talk about. So if you guys don't want to talk about it, you can talk about something <laughs> else. But, you know, like there's this type of thing. Cause I just, I've been thinking a lot about like the immigrant canon of stuff, you know, like whether films or books or whatever. And there's just so much of it that I would characterize as sort of like humanization porn, right? Like where it's like the whole point of it is to humanize the to humanize us. Right. And so then the obvious question is also well, humanize us to who, you know, somebody who grew up in Chinatown during that period of time, you don't need to explain that all these things are happening and that there are different types of people. Some people just came over and some people came over during the fucking gold rush. Like you don't need to explain that sort of stuff. But, you know, like I think this film is sort of squarely within that discipline where it's like kind of like, let I'll show you white people what Chinatown is like, right? Like, isn't it sort of like that? And then there's part of me that resists that. And yet I still really love this film, you know? Um, is that an unfair way to characterize the film, mm. do you think? But isn't it also saying, like, this is... It's not really showing you what Chinatown looks... I mean, it is, yeah. but it's also saying it's, like, it's irreducible, right? Like, it's literally missing. Yeah. Um, the 
or like like there's no you know there's no there's no there's no like individual image that stands in for for the right. for the community yeah. right so it's like this very yeah. We contain multitudes type of argument, right. but like, <laughs> right. you know, that's like a, I don't know. I can just sort of see in my head, you know, not to belabor the academic thing, but you know, like somebody who's like super woke being like, you know, like the white gaze in this film, this film is like, is like destroyed by the white gaze, which, you know, I don't know. I think it's a, it's, I think it's an okay argument to make. Wait, right? do you, you just said here? the white gaze is destroyed by the white gaze? Yeah. The white, yeah. this film is destroyed by the white gaze. Right? Oh, the that, film. that why? That because, the person that it hopes uh-huh. to convert is like white people to watch it who watch oh. it and be like, oh, wow, I didn't think that Chinese people, I thought they're all right. just like little robots walking around and they all <laughs> arrived on the same boat, you know, <laughs> like, That's like these people are funny, you know, they tell jokes like they, you know, they have like, they have interior lives like, you know, like, do you, do you think that this was the point of the film? No, I don't. I mean, no, I don't think, I, don't. I think that this was made at a time where the goal wasn't really to like, you know, humanize a community for other people. It was just like, let's just make this. You know what I mean? Like, it was just a very different moment, I think, in what we might call like Asian American film or Asian American art. And I think he acknowledges that in that first scene where Joe's driving like a mm. white uh, passenger yeah. and he's basically like, you know, they always ask you, like, what's good Chinese food oh, yeah. around here? And then he just kind of dismisses so it. And then the film is like actually pretty confusing and elliptical from there. So, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, it's, it's conscious of that gaze, but then especially when, when he just kind of ethers that academic, I mean, in a film that's so generous to everyone to kind of make fun of, <laughs> you know, like that, sorry, that academic gets paralleled at the very end with that Chinese, whatever diplomat guy mm-hmm. who starts talking about like Chinese culture, the apple pie like, guy. No, uh, no, not the that. Not, not funeral. George. The guy he runs yeah, that yeah. uh, Joe runs into on the street. Yeah, yeah. This kind of high up guy who's like, I just gave this talk. That's really funny. At the cultural center about the Chinese opera and blah blah blah. And to someone like Joe is like, I don't give a shit about Chinese opera. And so I think in a way he's, you know, he's ethering the sociologist linguistic person. He's also ethering like people who would, the Chinese nationalist, mm-hmm. right? Who yeah. says like we're all one civilization, with all these sort of like high high um high cultural blah 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 like no like to someone like joe he doesn't really care about that stuff right okay can i can i can i back i'm gonna i'm gonna try and i i i, I bring white you guys but i want to bring the white to audience back into this jay yeah 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 yeah, <laughs> I, I, yeah exactly <laughs> our podcast is now being filtered through the white gaze um <laughs> The reviews of this film were all that, right? It was like, and very, like Roger Ebert reviewed it, like the New York Times reviewed it. Um, and they all basically just said that, right? Like uh, in New York, the New York Times review said, Chan is missing is not only appreciation of a way of life that few of us know anything about, it is a revelation of a marvelous, completely secure new talent, right? Um, the Roger Ebert said, uh, it is a whimsical treasure of a film that gives us a real feeling for the people of San Francisco's Chinatown and has already become something of a legend because of the way it was filmed, which, you know, is not um, different. And then that it demonstrates a warm, low-key, affectionate, and funny look at some real Chinese Americans. <laughs> so has he ruined his cry with better luck tomorrow? <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, no, no I'm but okay I... with him still. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, so, but, but I guess my thought, wait, wait, you know, wait, just generally I... speaking. Yep. Oh, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, like just generally speaking, I was like, do you like, what do you make of films like this? Right. Like where it's not like, do you, do they make you kind of uncomfortable in any sort of way? Because it does seem 
like the way that they're celebrated, even if this is not the intent of Wayne Wang. I will say the next the 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 film that he made after this was Joy Luck Club, but like I'm not, you yeah, know, he made really he made Dim Sum between the two. I never seen that. Is it good? What is it? It's it's similar. It's probably more like Joy Luck Club than this. I mean, it's not as mm. kind of like raw and like vaguely yeah. experimental, but um, but yeah, I mean, he became yeah, I, a much more conventional filmmaker after this. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard to fault him for that because just like how much money did he get? He got paid. I'm sure he lost money on Chan is Missing and they gave yeah. him Joy Luck Club to make it. It's like, yeah, let's do it. You know? <laughs> um, but like, yeah, you can't fault people for that yeah. sort of stuff. But like, what, what about this general idea? Like, do you think that there is something about the Asian American canon that is somewhat obsessed with humanizing Asian Americans for white people? And is this film an example of that? I think all of the, the sort of like diasporic communities have this burden of like, you know, kind of making explanatory art, you know, that has been like an issue. Um, and I wonder why, if you have thoughts on like kind of that multiculturalism period that I know that you've written a lot about, but um, I think I don't felt, I, I don't personally didn't feel like this film falls into that at all. I feel like that is definitely a discussion to have around like Joy Luck and maybe other films of that particular era. Um, but yeah, and I think now I, I feel that a lot more of like Asian American cultural production has moved a lot away from that. Mm. But yeah, I think there was like a period where that was like definitely heavy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think if he hadn't made Joy's, uh, Joy Luck Club, I wouldn't even think about that, you know, but then I just mm. made Joy Luck Club. Like, isn't that, isn't that opening scene sort of an explicit rejection of it? By saying, I think so. Yeah, right. yeah. And even yeah. I don't know. He says like he gives an explanation between Mandarin and Cantonese food, which doesn't make any sense because those are languages; they're not food. <laughs> so I don't know if he was like mocking also, like the, like how if he was like mocking like how low, how little people actually know about the stuff that that he's talking about. Um, and the film mm. itself actually is an expl- exploration of like mandarin speaking versus cantonese speaking people in chinatown that doesn't explain at all the difference in a way and so I, I wonder if that was almost like an inside joke or a i thought yeah, it was just like a shortcut for like you know like cantonese food like you know in the way that you talk about like cantonese food or like other right. like yeah main like certain like mainland cuisines but anyway right, yeah. Um, yeah um and then, well, what were you gonna say um I don't know. I mean, it's sort of, uh, it's like a weird burden to put on, put on the film, right? Because it seems like he's very conscious of different kind of types of gazes, but it doesn't feel like it's sociological, but not like, not in a way that I think you walk away thinking like, oh, now, like, now I get it. Now I understand everything about <laughs> the Chinese American community. Um, and yet, I think it is just sort of like what Tammy was just saying. It is this burden, if you want to call it that, that, um, you know, a lot of artists feel. And I think he's very conscious of it. But I think this is really just an attempt to, like, kind of fuck with people more than while also representing kind of like the complexity of their lives. Um, Have you guys seen any of um, Spencer Nakasano's films? No. Like when you asked me to, to be on, I sort of like went down this rabbit hole of thinking about like all the kind of Asian American films of like the eighties and nineties that they're kind of hard to see, hard to find now. But he was this um, Japanese American documentarian who would give basically high school students in San Francisco 
um, camcorders. And so he made this one film called AKA Don Bonus, which uh, I think you can probably watch on YouTube. Um, but it's like this heist, this Cambodian American high school kid. And it's just about his senior year. And then he gave, there were these, there's this, uh, I think there's, it was like a Mien couple. Um, and he gave them a camcorder and they made this film called Kelly Loves Tony. It was just about like their senior year of high school. Hmm. And they're very much like what you're just describing, like humanizing, introducing people to like the Mien community, the Cambodian community in San Francisco. But it, you'd be hard pressed to watch it and think like, oh, this is for white people. You know, it's sort of like it's for themselves and it's for, you know, like people in their community. But then inevitably, it's also for white people, right? Just because that's how culture circulates. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Everything's uh, for white people. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Cool. Figured it out. <laughs> but, but I think that there are still these moments of difficulty in this film and also in those documentaries I just mentioned that I think create different levels of access and I think that mm. when you can kind of tell when an artist is kind of making no barriers to access. And I feel like there are definitely moments in Chan is Missing where I'm like, Did, was that a mistake or is this an inside joke? Like what Andy was just saying, there's like another scene where Joe and Steve are like arguing with each other near the end of the film um, next to the bay. And, you know, Steve's talking yeah. about like when I was in Vietnam and oh, then yeah. he's like, you know, like you're so obsessed with Chang or Chen, Chan, whatever. And I'm like, did you fuck up? Like, right. was that like a bad line read? Or are you just sort of commenting on how, you know, how interchangeable we all seem or something? Yeah. Um, and I feel like there's, <laughs> enough, there's enough moments like that in Chan is Missing where I'm like, this this is definitely just for themselves more yeah. so than it is. Like, they, they didn't, they weren't going to get famous off this film in like, you know, yeah. 1980. I think that's the same scene where Steve is like, the identity shit is 10 years old. Yeah. And that was kind of crazy. In the 1980s, like, identity awesome. shit is 10 years old. Steve, like, you <laughs> got to get over like, this identity shit already. Yeah. I was like, we Let have to cancel about, our podcast. Let me tell you about class reductionism, Joe. Yeah. One more interpretation I wanted to read. Um, but I want to keep talking about this because I thought it was interesting is that film. Um, fil- film scholar Peter Fang suggests that Chan is Missing can be understood via the metaphor of a donut. Each character holds a donut that contains the possibilities for Chinese-American identity in its center. Each of the uh, each of the film's characters only serve to widen that hole, the, thus widening the space for spectatorial subjectivity and, by extension, Asian-American subjectivity. What do you think about that? That the film is sort of like by by sort of denouncing or by at least like running against types of identity ideas, right? You have all these different people that is sort of expanding the, the actual uh, limits of what the identity could be. Yeah, I think, I mean, I feel like there was this definitely this period of time prior to this current moment where the whole point of identity was that it was futile to try and I, define it. And so just whatever you were, meant that you were that identity you know what i mean that it was like it was there was no point in trying to like figure out the specific parameters and so i mean that's the reason i like the film so much i don't know that i would have used the donut metaphor but uh, (laughs) it does seem like there's like a total absence in the center that makes it kind of you know inspiring and what i mean 
I don't know if if you know this specifically, Hua or others. Like, what would have been out there before this film for people interested in like Asian American film? Like 1981. Yeah, was there like a type, a, a product, or an archetype of very that it's little reacting against? Very little, because most of the Asian American film stuff is in the 80s, right? Yeah. Like, uh, like Christine Choi and like, yeah. Like there's yeah. I mean, she started making films in the yeah in the mid 70s, but yeah, they were. Because well, I'm thinking like Wayne Wayne Wing was like 30 when he made this. But he came pretty late. He was in Hong Kong until his teenage years. So I almost wonder if this is also partly a reaction to like the sort of like in Asia, there were like really bad archetypal films that eventually was what the Taiwanese new wave reacts against in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. Right. Like the Edward Yang types were like every film was basically like a, a KMT propaganda film or a historical drama. That's all about like the nation and these political figures. And then they told these gritty stories of like, you know, people who like have affairs and smoke cigarettes all the time. And that was like a reaction against that. So Sounds like Korean dramas right now. <laughs> but less, much, much less classy though, right? But it's supposed to be like, this is real life as yeah. opposed to like. Yeah. Oh, that's not Korean drama. Right. Yeah, no. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I almost wonder if like Wayne Wang is re- like, I guess I'm wondering like, is he reacting against, because that's what I think he's doing with that academic. And I think that's what he's also doing with that guy at the very end who's like i just gave a speech about northern versus southern opera to this chinese convention center group like i think those are the that's like the extreme that he's working against right like these are you know i think it's yeah i think it's what was said i think it is a desire to like sort of dismantle the idea that there should be any type of identity period right like that's why you make fun of an academic who comes in and talks that way that's why you sort of you know make fun and then that's why you show these sort of iterations of Chinese Americans that feel so, you know, like in some ways they feel very American in some ways they don't feel American at all. But then you just are sort of asking, well, what makes them feel American? What makes them not feel American? Right. And then, and then you, you're, I think the thing that you're supposed to think is like, they're just people, you know, and we should think of them as just people, which I think is a totally fine thing for a film to like look out to, to try and do. But, um, well, you're, you're, Go ahead. Yeah, Tammy, go well, ahead. Well, I was, I mean, Juan probably has much more specific experience with this, but to me, I would, like, I was looking less at, like, Asian or Asian American progenitors and more thinking about, like, what Black and Chicano filmmaking or, like, cultural production might have looked like around this era. Just because, like, I had mentioned that Richard Pryor, Lily Tomlin sketch that was, like, mm-hmm. almost 10 years before this. Um, but that kind of, like, urban sketch comedy, like, you know, sort of indie feeling to me was more of the aesthetic than anything mm. that was necessarily asian yeah you know it definitely doesn't feel particularly asian to me either why well, you, you show this to your students do they like it um i don't i feel like it's <laughs> one of those things where it's like if someone likes it that that's significant <laughs> like oh like really if, like if a student is really into like the sound design or the music like people just gravitate towards part aspects of it but like earlier I said, it's a little difficult to watch. I think it's just so strange to watch a black yeah. and white film that's like mainly carried by like non-professional actors. I mean, Steve <laughs> and Joe are professionals, but like, you know, like St- Steve or Joe's sister is like an Asian American studies professor. And like there's the sociologist, oh, like there's all these people in it who are just kind of, I mean, it is, it does kind of return to that magical moment of like, 
Asian American studies or, or the community being actually rooted in the community. And so yeah. I think it's beautiful to see, but it's also just kind of like weird to see too, because we're so accustomed to like reality being like reality TV or something that's like still scripted, uh, whereas this feels like it just has like an energy that I think is kind of hard sometimes for um, like a student who doesn't watch a lot of stuff like mm-hmm. this to really grab yeah. onto. Like, do you think Henry was an actor? The the chef? Oh, yeah, because he... he he, he crushed it. Like he, he was so good. So. <laughs> yeah, he's <was> so funny. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I don't know. I I've, I found myself thinking about this a lot just because I I'm like writing something about Minari, you know, or you know, whatever, like Minari, like um, and and is it um, good? I, I'm not gonna say either way because I'm writing about it. But like, I liked you know, it. I liked it. Okay. Um, and. But, you know, like it, I've just been thinking a lot about this idea of like Asia, of immigrant stories, right? And like what their function is. And it's just like, Minari is like so, it's like so focused on the family, you know? It's like so, and it's so consciously not trying to be an immigrant story in any sort of way outside of, you know, it, it's trying to be like a family portrait before anything else, right? And like, there's no like, there's no like scenes where, where you would expect being like, oh, well, this is what it means to be an immigrant. It's just like this guy is trying to start this farm. And I think that that's very refreshing in a lot of ways. And I think that it's like, a con- you know, it's a conscious subversion of it. And like, I don't know, I think that this film as well, it's like a conscious subversion of something. I just don't really know what, it, <laughs> what it's a conscious subversion <laughs> of, you know, because it just feels very subversive the whole time. And like, um, I don't know, it's interesting because I, I do, th- Tammy, I do actually agree with you in a lot of ways that like the things that we sort of hold up as being like the, the sort of archetypes of, of Asian American books and Asian American film, like I don't, maybe like, maybe nobody does that anymore. Like I can't think of anyone <laughs> who does that anymore. You know, can you think of the last thing you read, which is sort of like, you know, and the kimchi is like, you know, the fam is like the soul. That's why we bury it in the ground. And, you know, and like, or, or even like, you know, like I always had this movie, you know, that movie dope. Like, did you yeah. ever see that? I fucking hate that movie, you know, because like the premise of that film is like basically like, hey, we're black, but we listen to like punk rock and the Smiths and, you know, we're nerds. And like, that's why you should like us. It's just like, fuck you, you know, like, like, that, like I'm not going to decide to like you because you like decide to like some white stuff only, you know, <laughs> but there, and so there's a genre of Asian American kind of like cringe stuff i think that was like that too right like you know like i'm an athlete like if it's like some mm-hmm. red pill dude or if it's or like something like you know i'm the popular guy which is like sort of the way in which a lot of stuff is happening now where you have like these teen shows that where they do the whole mm-hmm. like completely ludicrous multicultural casting thing and the asian guy is always like the popular guy and like listen it's more insulting that you felt like this that you needed to do this <laughs> <laughs> i don't know i guess i'm seeing less of that I but, but maybe i'm wrong like like what do you think do you think that those types of tropes are still there and that we should like consciously think about them or consciously write and create things against them or do you think that we can just ignore them at this point 1981 i will say wayne wang 100 percent was reacting to those and that because they're very real at the time right but like now i don't know we're 30 years 40 years removed holy shit 40 years yeah yeah. Uh, what do you think uh i did watch bling empire last night what's that that? what's bling empire is that like johnny dang is this new netflix show that's supposed to be a reality version of crazy rich asians 
Really? Um, no one's seen this? I bet all of our listeners are on top of this. Yeah. Um, That's so funny. There's a lot of like Asian explanation, but I don't know if it's like the high culture, like that's a barometer of like where culture is at. There's a lot of like, actually the main character is a, a, I don't know how much to believe, a Korean adoptee from Philadelphia. And he does like this sort of uh, Fresh Prince thing where he moves to LA and then uh, meets real Asians and he gets kind of pulled into this like crazy rich Asian scene in LA. Wait, it's reality show? Yeah, but it's so produced. It's like it's almost impossible oh, okay. to take seriously. Okay. Um, but yeah, there's a lot. Of, but there's a lot of like in Chinese New Year, Chinese culture, blah, 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 blah. But I see. Yeah. I don't know. It's kind of kitschy. That that sounds kind of cool. Yeah. We, <laughs> we'll probably, cool. yeah, we should. We could, I, we could I do might it. watch that. I've been rewatching The Wire and let me say, I, you know, I love The Wire, but the second time around has not been yeah. as good as the second time around of The of the Sopranos. The Sopranos. The second oh, time around, the Sopranos, like, this is the best show ever. And the second time with the wire around, I'm just like, I don't know. So this is kind of hope. What season are you in? The Wire? Yeah. Uh, season three. Okay. That's the best, in my opinion. Yeah, it's good. I mean, I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying, like, it's not, you know. No, I, know. I, usually, watching the I usually stop after season three. Oh. Really? I like season okay. four. Yeah. Um, uh yeah I don't, I don't i don't know maybe we shouldn't think about these questions anymore and why what do you think do you think that we should con- constantly obsess over these questions about <laughs> about how we're whether or not we're avoiding the white gaze or whether we're you know what we're thinking about it i mean it just seems very uh i don't know it seems just now now i'm thinking I'm like anticipating like a white listener to <laughs> whatever the audio version of a white gaze would be. I mean, it, but it just seems like you're putting way too much uh, for like, it's just too much to have to worry about. Right. I mean, it's, it's hard enough just like make shit, but to then kind of obsess over um, like the tropes are there because they're to some degree like useful storytelling devices or they're, they reflect some kind of reality. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, but you, you're actually just reminding me that like, um, you know how at the beginning of the film, um, there's like a dedication. So at the beginning yeah. of Chan is Missing, it says like dedicated yeah, 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 to yeah, yeah, Wong yeah. Chin. And um, there was like always this like mystery about who it was. Um, and someone emailed me Apparently in 2016, I completely forgot about this. So we were having this conversation oh, wow. and she said like, I am actually Wong Chin. No way. Yeah. And she sent me all of these photos from the set. Her name's Nancy Wong. Oh and she's God. like, a, that's amazing. She's like a performer artist in that Asian American scene in San Francisco in the seventies and eighties. And a, a lot of like the photos you see on Wikipedia of like, you know, Kearney street workshop or, um, mm-hmm. Chan is Missing or Dim Sum, um, just like Asian American Bay Area cultural production from that period of time are like pictures she took that she put up on Wikipedia. Oh oh. But she apparently loaned him $2,500 for the film, so he de- he dedicated <laughs> to it. Yeah. That's oh, so wow. funny. So I love that. Funny. Breaking wow. news. So. Is this because did you, did you write a piece about it and she read it or something? I wrote a piece in like, I don't know, like 2009 or something. And then wow. seven years later, she's like, I came across this <laughs> and I'm just going to send you like, you know, a hundred megabytes worth of photographs. And that's amazing. Yeah. That Vassar uh, profile page was useful. Oh, and her sister went to Vassar, which is why she (laughs) reached out. But but I just remember always thinking that like, Oh, it's so, it's so mysterious. Like he, he would never say who it was. Like it was part of the the kind of like 
donut hole, if we, yeah. if you will, of the movie that like, you know, there's like a moving target, like nobody knows this is, but no, it's an actual just <laughs> person who yeah. their money, you know. That's so, so great. But it just kind of speaks to the the film that yeah. like you could just kind of sit here and like puzzle through it, but it also was just like a film that a bunch of people made together. Yeah, and it's like a reflection that, that, of their yeah. life. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's a good point. I think that's where it's like you know where those questions are don't really apply to the film because it's it just feels so like you can't really even figure out what it is and then whatever it is it just feels like it was people getting together and kind of having fun it does and then what they create is so good that it you know there is something where it's just like well these questions don't apply if it's good they only apply if yeah. it's bad right. you know and yeah. so so like i think i think that i think like if that's i was to, to think about it very like it'll like you know from like a totally stripped down it'll, i would be like yes this film is like a humanization film yeah. in, in a lot of ways you know and maybe i would be wrong about that but i think my general response would be like who you know it's also very good yeah and so it's okay you know if it was bad then like the problems with those those types of categories are when it's bad when it's like cringy you yeah. know but it's it's not a problem when it's good yeah, I mean, uh, but... the way I think the, I don't know if I believe this, but I think the way I would put it, if I were like giving a pep talk to someone is like, just, because this is like advice I would get. <laughs> like, do do what you find interesting. Do what you personally find really, really interesting. Because Wayne Wing is obviously interested in this multiple levels of diaspora in, Bay, in the Bay Area. And if you are interested in it and you're, like, you're passionate about it, then other people will kind of get that, even if they don't really get what you're saying. Yeah. And, that, and that's kind of it seems to me like i don't you know obviously i wasn't even born then so i have no idea but that kind of seems like what happened right you like weren't he, alive in, you were born in 1981 he was oh my God. <laughs> how, wait, how old were you i mean i gonna i was i was born two years later oh, okay yeah. uh he was like he was just like very passionate about this thing he knew really well and then people who have no idea what he's talking about could get could could sense like this is really mm -hmm. interesting and even if we only can kind of like vaguely, so I would say like, you know, like, yeah, you know, and that's the advice I would get. Like if people can tell when you're interested in, and passionate about a topic and they will find it interesting, even if they have no idea what the, what the fuck you're talking about. Right. Well, like, yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. And he's, he certainly did that. I mean, I didn't know any of that stuff about the, you know, about the Taiwan, the flag controversy stuff. And it is at the center of the film, but you know, like, it's not like you, it, it's somewhat hard to follow, but like, it's not like it detracts from the pleasure of watching the film because the pleasure yeah. of watching the film is like how he films it and these characters that he brings out, you know, and um, and then these two guys just kind of like hamming it up while walking around yeah. San Francisco, which is like, you know, I don't know, like, it, I, I do think it's an important representation moment in some ways, you know, speaking as someone who generally resists that type of thing. I don't know. Yeah. When I first saw it, it, it was like, I was like, I can't believe that this movie exists, right? I think that's what most people generally think about it. Like, what what has he done, like, outside of doing Joy Luck Club? Like, I, I just find his career to be so interesting because he makes this, he makes this, like, really experimental, strange film, right? That somehow is reviewed by everybody. And it becomes, like, I think it was important at the time, like, especially in the context of Asian American film, like it's not, you know, it's not like he made a student film that we all discovered. And now we talk about in Asian American studies classes, like, you know, like this was like a thing, like Roger Ebert talked about it and everything like that. Do you know anything about like his career or like who he is? Well, 
Uh, I know a couple things. He made Made in Manhattan. Yeah, he did. With Jennifer Lopez. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, I liked, have you seen that Cecilia Chang doc he made? No, no, it's kind of interesting. Yeah, he made this documentary about um, Cecilia Chang, kind of like the godmother of Chinese American Chinese cuisine, oh, which is like kind of experimental. I I it it's kind of interesting. Yeah, it's. Oh. A, I mean, it's it it can be difficult to watch for different reasons in this film. And then I just downloaded his most recent film, which is actually a remake of, which is an adaptation of a Chang Rei Li story. Mm. So, is it good? Oh wow. Which I don't know. I haven't seen it yet, but this might be in Jay's uh, "quote unquote" humanization category because it's called "Coming Home Again" and it's about China- Korean immigrants and stars Justin Chun. <laughs> oh, I like Justin. I saw Chun, a clip but... of it, and I like him. So yeah. Yeah, yeah. That movie he made, Gook, was really good. I thought. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't. I, I didn't expect to like Gook. Yeah, me but neither. Kind of, but then I liked it. Up on me. Yeah. I found that myself very emotionally upset at the end of the film, which I didn't expect. Mm-hmm. Like it was like very moving to me, and I thought he yeah. made a good movie. You know, I was like, this is very yeah, I thought it was good. Movie. Um, but sorry, why I interrupted you? You probably actually no. I had no. Uh, I mean, I feel like I feel like a bit of an imposter because my qualification for being on the pod today is that I told Jay to go to the see this movie once, <laughs> like ten years ago. But um, <laughs> not true. <laughs> but it's you know it's it's interesting because we talk about this a lot in like music writing about how you know you can't stream any of the first three or four De La Soul albums. So it's sort of like is an entire generation of people just not going to ever listen to De La Soul? But you right? can't. Yeah, they're not on any streaming. Did they pull it themselves? It it has to do with their label, but you know, it's just oh. it's just interesting to have access okay. to everything, but then to have these like huge absences, mm. right? And so, yeah. you know, when you're talking about Minari, we're talking about like crazy rotations, it's weird to think that they have mm. a relationship to this film just because this film exists, right? But that it's much harder to access, you know, Chan is missing or um, there's this film that came out in the eighties called living on Tokyo time, which is about like this Japanese American guy who marries this Japanese woman. He's like trying to be a rock star. Like there are these really interesting Asian American independent films of the, of the eighties and nineties that just aren't accessible. Yeah. Like they're not part of this lineage. Yeah. When we talk about crazy rich Asians, people will talk about like fresh off the boat or all American girl or something. But um, and I don't really know what that gets you having that like broader historical perspective of like knowing the Chan is missing is there, but, um, I don't know. It's just kind of interesting to think about how it seems like there are these filmmakers or films that are going to put Asian American people on a bigger yeah. stage, but they seem to have like no relationship at all to like something like Chan is missing, even though, yeah, you know, that's true. How how did it's you like find they, it? It's like they created it out of, um, like it's like they started all over. But that's just be, don't you think that's just because of diasporic stuff? Why? Well, like don't you think that's like because there's a pure, the people who came over in the fifties, forties, whatever, are so fundamentally different than the people who came over in the seventies and eighties, and there's just so many more people who came over in the seventies and eighties who have no understanding of what. I've been accused of this several times, by the way. I have no understanding of what Asian American history is. Um, and they have, are just like reinventing it and, and saying that, you know, this is all new. Like, I think that there is part, you know, part of that I think is true, right? 
like the idea that I'm sure that Wayne Wang was struggling with all these questions about this stuff. And now it seems like a new generation of people are like, well, how do we think about this stuff? And maybe there is an answer in the past. I, I, I found that watching this movie, you know, with you at BAM, I don't know, what was it like nine years ago or something like that? It was very like, it was uh, very like, uh, it totally changed the way that I thought about like my own work for sure. You know, like it gave me like uh, ideas about what stuff I could actually do that would be exciting. I don't know. I found it totally inspiring. I think it is good for people to 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 go back and have that knowledge of this history. How did how did it change your view of your own work? Well, I don't know. I just thought that I could like probably get away with more. You know, <laughs> that I wouldn't have to. I don't know. Jay, that, you're welcome. That there... <laughs> yeah, no, it really was. I mean, I I've, I don't know how many times I've seen this. I've probably seen it ten times or something like that. You wow. know. And uh, it's just because it's so alive, like, you know, like it's like it's not didactic in any sort of way, except in the ways that it is, which I think are very knowing, you <laughs> yeah. know, like it's like yeah. I'm going to be didactic now. And it's almost making fun of that, you know, right. but I don't know before it's like you feel like your job in the media is to just explain Asian people to white people, you know, like like an elite audience. It's probably my job. I don't know if I was to explain my job, it'd be that. But like, uh, you know, like you can have some sense of humor about it, I think is like the big lesson out of it. And to think that this guy in 1981 with a $7,000 um, budget is making this hysterical film. I don't know. It's very liberating in a lot of ways to watch. I don't, Tammy, what did you feel watching it? Did you feel the same sense of liberation, or like, what, what did you feel watching it? Yeah, I think. Well, I think in terms of form, like I think the sloppiness and like the yeah, just like all the like gaps and stuff were liberating to me in that way. Like identity-wise, I don't know. Like I think it. I just had a lot of fun with it. I think it's it's very like. Yeah, I guess just like the kaleidoscopic piece that you mentioned to me felt very um, connected to this idea of like, you can make a, like the the form seems really fitted to the content basically in this film. And I like yeah. that part of it. Yeah. 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 It's like, and it's like, you know, I don't know. It just looks cool. And, you know, it looks it's cool. like, it's and funny. They're, cool, yeah. they're funny. I guess that, I think that might be it. I think that was the thing that was like eye opening to me. Cause it wasn't like snow falling on cedars or yeah. something. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like all this Asian stuff is so serious, you know, it's like, you know, like it's, it's like, and, stuff about yeah. like internment and stuff like that. And you're just like, like, I think that, you know, you should be serious when talking about internment and stuff, but you know, you could also, <laughs> but like, this is, this is the first thing that I had seen where it was like, I was like, Oh, this is so funny, you yeah. know, like, and it doesn't take itself seriously in this way. But it's still like as it, you know, as something that exists, it's important, right? Like it's important that this thing was made in 1981, yeah. and that I think we can be very serious about it being important that it exists. But like you know, like we can watch it and just be like, oh well, I'm, you know, it's a good reminder that you're allowed to like, you can talk about these things without like fucking being so yeah. maudlin about everything. <laughs> you know that you guys get the joke where he said um, they want to have this parade on October 1st. Versus no, or the fifth or whatever. So October first is like the founding day of the, the of the PRC, and mm -hmm. October tenth is like the day of the the Qing gets overthrown and the Taiwanese people take that as their sort of founding day. So, so the and then the joke is like October, let's just have a march on October fifth instead. <laughs> yeah. just split the difference. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's like so super like just uh, tongue in cheek is right. We're just sort of like you know middle finger to mm -hmm. like to like all the sort of sacred political stuff 
Um, mm-hmm. so, so yeah, stuff like that is just like totally funny. It's like, and, and you can also like imagine someone really saying that, you know, just the sort of like. It's, yeah, it's just <laughs> very funny. I'm sure he heard it somewhere or something yeah. like that, right? And then just put it in there. Well, for our listeners, do you have, and, and you know, for us as well, do you have any other films to recommend? You know, um, you mean for like the Asian American rewatchables? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Great category. Um, I don't know. Uh, I'm going to stall by saying, you know, before when I was talking about like history and sort of the connection between this and the past, like that's not to say like you have to watch all these old films. I, I think it's actually pretty cool what you just described about how, you know, by the time you got to it, it helped you kind of unthink or like rethink things you're already doing, you know? So I think it can also be sort of like a burden to, to go kind of in chronological order. So um, what you said though, really kind of hit me because I think the reason I like this film so much is that it just makes you feel like you can do shit too, or that it's just sort of like authorizing you to like not necessarily agree with it or or like find yourself in it. And I feel like a lot of Asian American art or just sort of like art of that sort is very much like, no, you have to feel this, right? Or you have to agree with this or you have to like be down with what I'm saying. But, you know, it's like, I feel like I probably associate more with his daughter, you know, who just kind of making fun of her dad, her absent father. Um, (laughs) Not that my father's absent, just because of the, the, because she was like listening to music and like she didn't really care about what was going on. Um, you know, I feel like some of those documentaries are pretty cool. Like the ones from the nineties, um, like AKA Don bonus. Um, I think it'd be really interesting to watch, especially just given how like East Asian heavy people think Asian American culture has to be or tends to be. Um, so how do you find this stuff though? Cause you said like a lot of this stuff can't be found. I feel like, I think someone uploaded it onto youtube um but i'll uh, i'll dig around and i'll send you guys some stuff if i can find it but yeah that'd be great um those documentaries are they're really cool and they're just very strange because i feel like watching it with like 2020 eyes you're just like you know oh this guy's like appropriating black culture or something which you know (laughs) yes but he also just like lives in hunter's point in like 1992 and like that that kind of like optic or like language isn't yeah. available you know to, yeah. to that moment so um but some of those community driven documentaries that spencer nakasano making was making back then are, are like still pretty mind-blowing That's and there's also like the steven okazaki right yeah living yeah. in living on tokyo time um the i hotel yeah. documentary is incredible too i think it came out a couple years after this oh yeah steven okazaki um lives up near me i'm like friends with his wife peggy oh cool um but uh i've watched his films on uh, his documentaries on youtube too he did a lot of stuff around hiv in san francisco as well i think they're worth uh, yeah i think they're great and they're worth watching um i don't know i i i, I thought well the, the last thing i'll say and i want uh you know not to end it but like i think you're right like you know like watching chan is missing it's not like i as an asian american feel any sort of like recognition with this world in fact i find it totally foreign you know <laughs> just like like i didn't grow up in san francisco chinatown i've i hadn't met somebody who was born you know born in america before 1965 
until I turned like 25 or something like that, you know, like a, like a third generation Chinese American or something like that. I'd never met somebody like that before. I barely knew any Asians who spoke without accents, seriously, you know, like, um, and, uh, except, you know, young people my age, but like people older, like no way, you know, they, they all spoke with accents. And so it does feel foreign in some way. And it doesn't ask you to like kind of join in on that identity. It's just like, kind of like, you know, the, the foreignness of it, I think I actually made me yeah. enjoy it a little bit more, you know, I don't know. I mean, Tammy, didn't those scenes kind of remind you of like Seattle Chinatown when you were growing up? Like the, the streets uh-huh. and like the kind of, the kind of groups of yeah. people. I think some of the topography, but it, it, it reminded me a lot of New York Chinatown, which I know fairly well. And yeah, like the, yeah. the PRC Taiwan stuff, like definitely like all the kind of feuding diasporas and, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that it felt familiar, but also alien and foreign like, and, and older. That guy, Steve, felt very much like a guy from Seattle. <laughs> like that, that I would have like. Yeah, I, I hear like, like a parent's friend from the 80s, like with yeah. that mustache and, uh, <laughs> and the puffy hair and like the perfect english but still you know like it doesn't like yeah like almost stoner english oh, right yeah. that's what i kind of liked about it was that he's like he sounded stone the whole time yeah. you know? like, like joe uh, was like my parents friend and like steve was like the <laughs> I, don't I don't know and that guy was japanese american and i feel yeah. like i mean this is where yeah. you sort of like dig into it and think like is this a joke is this an inside joke but you know the fact that it's all about like chinatown and chinese identity but like the co-star is japanese is clearly japanese american right? clearly yeah. japanese exactly. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't think it was clear until the end oh i was like this is a dude looks so japanese <laughs> the uh, the daughter is also japanese american uh, oh, Chan Chan's daughter. oh yeah interesting okay we're at an hour 40 we ha- we're not going to go over and make wa the the longest and the second longest uh podcast that we've done but how long um, was the yeah how long well, thanks for lap? coming on and wait how long I don't was know, that time what? How long was how long was that one? I think it was like an hour forty seven or something like that. Um, but yeah. yeah, I don't know. And also, thank you for recommending this movie. I'm glad. I'm glad. You okay, it was a pleasure it. to change your life. So, <laughs> no, it really was. It was like totally like eye opening because I was, I thought about it for like a year because I was just like, what am I doing? You know, I'm doing all these sad stories about like Asian people shooting people and shit. You know, and then I'm just like writing about like all this stuff about like. Uh, you know why that is and you know you don't understand us we're really like you know like fucked up and then it's like you know like i'm being way too serious about this stuff you know like why am i being so serious about it now i can't point to anything that i've done since that is not the same exact problem that i had before so it hasn't actually changed my work but it's made me dislike my work a lot more <laughs> which i th- which i think is good you know um i don't know maybe i should have you know that's way written- that's totally fascinating so you mean you just sort of rethought the types of stories that you wanted to to like put out in the world are you filibustering no i'm not i'm I'm actually like (laughs) i knew that jay really liked it i just didn't i didn't know that it had like uh you know yeah yeah no it made me think that like there is like a way in which you can do things where you can you don't have to be so obsessed with these ideas about like, you know, like being understood, Mm -hmm. right. That you can do things that are self-evident to you 
and it doesn't matter if other people pick on it but upon it if it's good you know and i think that's sort of the lesson mm -hmm. of this film is just like i can't describe anything that happens in it the plot makes no sense you know and uh and like it's just a bunch of people talking and appearing on screen and then leaving and then they don't come back right but like and there is a critique of it i think that can be made that it's like you know like somehow like uh you know playing into the white gaze but in the end it's like very funny and very good and i think that in the end what i realized was that you're really that i can yeah you know that i should just i should just make things that are funny and really good you know and since i have not made anything that's funny or really good but i've thought about it you know and i was just like i wish i could make something like this you know um or i could wish i could make something like uh you know like bing lu's minding the gap where it's like like it is about an Asian American kid, I guess, and his Chinese American mother mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, but like it is not about race in that way at all, you know, but it is extremely good, you know? And so I don't know, I just think about it and just like, maybe I'm too caught in this idea of like how to think of myself in terms of the work that I'm doing within the context of the places that I write when what type of people read them. Maybe I should just make things that are good. And you know, it's, at some point I will, I think, you know, I'm, I'm still, I'm still only 41 years old and <laughs> I'm still learning things. I'm going to, I'm going to get there one day. I, I, you know, I think it's significant that I'm not saying that you, you won't, but for mining the gap, Chan is missing. Like these were the first things they did, like the first major thing. Yeah. And yeah. to some degree, I mean, it, I feel like you just, maybe you're just less, you, you just understand like the discourse less you know like you, you don't you're not as conscious of like the world that your creation is going to enter into um, yeah for sure yeah yeah i thought about that with uh and you'll see the thing i'm writing with you know it's like i thought about it myself it was just like the stuff i wrote when i was like 22 years old is much funnier you know because i didn't have this conversation <laughs> in my head all the time and so maybe i just need to rediscover that sort of like guilelessness like i, I read this thing or just like thinking about myself when I was in graduate school and I would go to Labyrinth Books and I would do this game where I'd just be like, there are no Asian authors. But I didn't actually care about the fact that there weren't any Asian authors, but I felt like I should do it because somebody, you know, I had thoughts that like, oh, I should care that there are no Asian authors other than Amy Tan and Don Lee and Chang Ray Lee at the time. You know, like this is like 1999 or 2002 or something like that. And and then, but in my own head, I wasn't thinking, oh, I'm limited by this. In my own head, I was thinking, I'm just going to fucking do it. You know, who fucking cares? Like, they're not going to stop me. Like, I'm a fucking genius, you know? <laughs> and I think that, yeah, I think when you're young, like, you do have those thoughts. And maybe it just helps you just bust through all that sort of stuff, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Mining the Gap was, like, Bing's first big film. And, um, and this was, like, something that this dude made for $7,000 with his friends, you know? And maybe that's what makes them seem free of that stuff but then liberated i mean this is kind of like an age-old debate about pop pop art all forms of like pop art but like if you're really really successful with the first one is that a curse where you feel like you know everyone's just has all this like expectations on what you're doing and does have to live up to the first thing and um so i don't know maybe it's actually good to just kind of like slowly get there I don't know. Yeah, yeah, that's where that's my path. <laughs> yeah. That's what we're all doing on this podcast right now. <laughs> yeah, we're actually slowly all of us, especially all of us born before 1981 when the film came out, we're, we're on our way. 
We're going to get there. Um, all right. Well, thanks for listening right, to our show. Wow, thank 40. you for coming on. Man. Yeah, we can't what? go on seven more minutes. So. <laughs> I know. I know. I think we, I think we might Wait, be Jamie, going to the longest one. I can't. You're not. Your your vocals aren't showing up on the thing. Is uh... <laughs> Jay, hurry. End it. Okay. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. It's not. Oh, well. It is um, I think it's thank fun. you for listening right, to the cool. show. Right. Uh, we are... Um, yeah, we, we're going to keep doing this every week. Sorry for the week-long delay and send us your emails and everything like that. I think we're going to start responding to emails every week, not this Listener week. Listener mailbag. we're already so long. <laughs> but, um, we have a big backlog of them, and we're going to get through them. So thank you very much. Uh, yeah, I'll see you guys next week. I'll be back. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'll still be here. All right, bye.